0: Is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall, we've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, mega trends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK. Here's your host, Chris Marshall.
1: Welcome to this episode of Transitional Matters, where we look at the biggest trends and mega trends going on around us. Today, I'm joined by Adam Sharp. Adam's a futurist, uh, works at Futurly. I'm going to get you to introduce yourself really, Adam, because you'll do a far better job than me. But your specialization is demographics. Is that fair to label you with that? It's probably
2: not fair, actually. I mean, I wouldn't describe myself as a demographer. I'm just—I um, I think I'm more of a sort of youth engagement expert and futurist who thinks that demographics are extremely important and often overlooked. And that gives me a chance to talk about demographics with a lot of different people in different contexts. So I think it's more of a like hobby and passion of mine, really.
1: You see, this is why I don't introduce people. <laughs> because I just get it wrong from the start, but can I get you to outline, just to kind of the, the audience who perhaps don't know you, can I get you to outline perhaps your background, some of the stuff you do at futurely, and, and why futures thinking is kind of so important at this stage of where we are in the world? Because uh, I know we've had previous conversations. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- so, I'm originally from the UK, but I moved to
2: Asia about 13 years ago now in 2009 during the sort of thick of the financial crisis with every intention of building a career in Asia. And, you know, your career can go off in all kinds of interesting directions. And I it would be wrong to say that I had tremendous foresight back then of, of what I would be doing um, at this stage. But there were a few sort of pivotal moments that define and frame what I do now. One was, moving into the youth development sector, I started working for MTV Exit, MTV Music Television and Exploitation and Trafficking. This was the world's biggest behavior change campaign in the fight against human trafficking and exploitation. So taking an MTV approach, i.e. concerts, music videos, documentaries, and trying to address this very taboo issue. And, And my job there was to help develop their youth engagement program which was, how do we engage young people in Southeast Asia in some of the most remote at-risk parts of the region where trafficking happens far too often? How do they lead the fight and raise awareness in their communities and protect people from from these evil traffickers who profit tremendously often from ignorance? That really shaped so much of how I see the world, why youth engagement is important, how to engage young people through programming, how to maximize their potential to contribute to a better future for everyone. Then about five years ago now, I was first exposed to futures thinking through a workshop with a world-renowned futurist called Sahel Iniyatullah, who I'm lucky to say is now a, a partner of mine. And he basically took a group of people through a futures thinking process and it was just so eye opening there are a few reasons why it had an impact on me i think i think for me the chance to think about the future in a structured way it was the first time i'd ever done it you know i think most of us don't think about the future really unless it's you know some movie that we're watching or you know maybe some news article some headline that's maybe quite fearful you know an attention grabbing statement but this was about bringing agency back that the future isn't necessarily something we should fear, it's something that we can look forward to, it's something that we can create together collaboratively. And I immediately saw it through my youth engagement lens, recognizing that so many young people felt so unsure about their future and creating spaces where they can engage with economists or policymakers or different stakeholders and they can start really getting to grips with what are some alternative futures that are ahead of us and what futures do we want and how do we get there? So I just loved the process and that really meant futures thinking became more of my youth engagement practice and I've just been doing it more and more ever mm-hmm. since. So now you can call me a youth foresight expert if you like. I run an online futures thinking school called MetaFuture School with Sahail and I'm a consultant with UNICEF. So that's training young people in futures thinking and then engaging them to help shape UNICEF's strategies and approaches to creating a better world. So that's me in a nutshell.
1: I think you pull out a really interesting point there because we obviously kind of met, well, I think I think it was I reached out to you. You'd written an article in the magazine of the Association of Professional Futurists, where we're both members of. And we're going to touch on that because it goes into kind of some of the things you see going on. And for me, as a kind of, I'd label myself as a behavioral futurist, it's kind of very interesting what you're seeing going on in, in the mindset change of Youth and some of the younger generation. But what I think I've found interesting is all the futurists I kind of speak to and come across, we all kind of stumble into it, or most do anyway. And, but that's quite beautiful in a way because everybody comes with massively varying backgrounds. And, you know, kind of that story you just told about how you arrived at it, uh, I didn't actually know some of that from our previous conversations but it kind of makes sense of how and where you're focusing your, your efforts to, which I, I think is brilliant. Let's bring this on to kind of demographic change. Why in your view is demographics so important? Yeah, um, it's a big question. I think it's best to quote someone
2: actually. There's a, a guy called Dr. Darrell Bricker and he wrote the book Empty Planet and he has this quote about demographics that is really resonates and it's, as they move through the land, mm-hmm they change everything under them and around them. They're saying demographics are like glaciers. As they move through the land, they change everything under and around them. And when they recede, the earth around them has changed forever. They're very difficult to stop when they get started and you can spot them from a very long distance. And I mean, obviously books like that, like Empty Planet have really shaped, you know, how I see this issue. But I think Why is it so important? The challenge is that like demographics are a mega trend, but they're widely misunderstood. So most people think that overpopulation is the mega trend that we should be most concerned about, partly because of language. There was a book in the late sixties called The Population Bomb by Paul Ehrlich, and that was hugely influential and language can really influence the um, the zeitgeist. You know, they can stay with us. Population bomb, it sounds very scary. And now with so much concern around how to address the climate crisis is understandable that, that so many people, especially young people I work with, the ones that I ask about population and demographics, they think a decline is a good thing. You know, less people equals less pressure on the planet. There's no mass movement to prepare for demographic change. There's no young people marching in the streets or banging on the doors of Davos, you know, despite the fact that this issue could greatly impact their futures. What I thought was fascinating, again, as Daryl Bricker put it, you know, you can see glaciers from a long way away, you know, in teachers thinking, we tend to state that it's impossible to predict the future. Instead, we create alternatives. There's too much complexity. And the further out you go, the less we can rely on data, on empirical evidence. But there are some things we do know, like how many people were born today. And therefore, we know roughly how many people will be in their 80s. Come the end of the century, right? So there's there's actually a lot that we do know because we have good data on demographics, and the data is all pointing in one direction, which is to decline, not overpopulation. So we see all over the world, particularly in Europe, like countries like Germany, Italy, and Serbia, and across Asia, most notably in Japan and Korea, uh, birth rates, i.e., the number of children per women, are way below replacement and dropping. Um, so populations are declining dramatically year on year. So Japan lost over 600,000 people from their population last year, which is the highest drop ever in recorded history. Countries like Bangladesh, like developing countries, are following soup. And in the space of 50 years since independence in the 70s, in Bangladesh, life expectancy has gone up by 20 years. And the birth rate has dropped from five children per woman to 2.2 this is like a development miracle that people are living longer and that women are better educated with more career prospects and are choosing to delay having children and whatever other reasons there are that are bringing the population down. You know, Deciding what they wish to do with their bodies, these are really positive things, but we need to plan for this, these changes, these demographic changes around the world at a systemic level. How do less and less young people support more and more old people? The inverted population pyramid, if you will you know, what's going to happen to the so-called safety net? What happens to pensions? What happens to healthcare spending? And I think what also really grabs my attention with this is that governments are responding to these demographic changes now in different ways that we're maybe not that aware of. You know, so while some are investing in childcare facilities to support better work-life balance or offering cash incentives for parents to have children, I don't know if you heard recently, the Japanese government is offering about like 7,700 US dollars to families in certain parts of Tokyo in 2023, if they move to a disadvantaged local area and
1: have children, they're offering them like big
2: cash incentives.
1: Yeah, I'd come across something similar on that because I included, in the research of my book, I included, I think it was like the Naga province. I'm probably doing a complete disservice to the pronunciation and actually made up a region in Japan now. But I came across that story. So I had to include it in a chapter in my book just because you're right it puts so much social strain on the systems we have in place so actually i put up a linkedin post the other day i'm sure you saw the kind of the protest going on in france at the moment over essentially pension reform and what is being missed is that bigger story that the measures being proposed are, are, are likely nowhere near enough to actually cope with the change coming down the line like they're talking about changing the retirement age by two years. France already has one of the lowest retirement ages in Europe. It already has one of the highest pension payment kind of ratios in Europe. Again, you know, it's kind of the worst of both sides. And when you actually look at it, you know, for me coming with kind of with an economic background, this isn't so much just about like oh people are going to have to retire later. This is actually potentially a solvency issue for governments and countries. I'm not just throwing bombs in (laughs) It's that serious. They are struggling to make their pension
2: obligations now. And that's like decades before the population pyramid changes even more, where it becomes even harder for them to rely on taxation and young people contributing to the economy to pay for these obligations. You're absolutely right. And I think in France, they're trying to extend the retirement age from sixty-three to sixty five. In America, it's already sixty-seven. And when does this stop? You know, like we we can start to think, well, in twenty years, you know, will there be a retirement age?
1: Yeah, because if you go back to kind of like let's take obviously I, I'm fairly familiar with the UK situation, but when the state pension was actually like introduced in the UK, like very few people got to it. It was almost like this, oh my word, if you live to be, I can't even remember what it was, let's just say it was 50. If you live to be 50 years old, we consider you an anomaly in society and we will help you get through the final few years. Now people take a state pension and they have potentially 30 years of retirement on it. And it's not only have we lengthened that out, but as you correctly say, there are fewer people contributing to these systems of working age The dependency ratio changes massively, and it changes again massively, doesn't it, as we kind of look out? Yeah, I mean, this is one of the many sort of policy
2: battlefronts that are going to become increasingly important over the coming decades. And these are things that, you know, we need to be aware of. And, and, you know, hats off to the French. I mean, they're always in the streets protesting and fighting for their rights. And so they should be, because... You know, ultimately, if we don't sort of fight for our rights and for our protections, then, you know, who's going to fight for us? So I think these are really important. But again, you know, this discussion around retirement is really interesting. A lot of futures thinking is about challenging our assumptions. And our assumption right now is that after 63 or 65, we're not really able to contribute to the economy. That might not be the case in the coming years, whether it be due to longevity tech or just Generally, the fact that we are living in better health and we're living longer, you know, one of the challenges that older people have in the job market is that they're hard to employ. Well, maybe in the future, there'll be incentives for companies to employ older people. Now, maybe there will be more businesses for older people because there'll be such a big percentage of the population and elderly people will be best placed to serve in those sorts of companies and in innovations. So. This is what I love about futures thinking is, you know, we're looking out to the horizon and thinking, you know, what are the different drivers of change in the present? And, you know, you're coming back to, you know, another battleground here. You know, it's, it's really a human rights minefield because, you know, one policy area is, for example, extending the retirement age. Another is about supporting families, family planning. These are that that's a really positive thing, but also in China, and family planning officials have begun refusing men vasectomies. So, according to official figures, the number of vasectomies has dropped from like 150,000 to like 5,000 from 2015 to 2019. That's extraordinary, right? But there's no official ban. It's just that suddenly the procedure isn't available in hospitals. So, what I mean by this is. Any sorts of policies to address population decline, we need to ensure that they respect human rights. And we need the whole government to account for this because there are some scenarios here where we potentially start to lose some of the human rights that we fought for over the,
1: you know, in, in our recent history. So this is why it's so important. Absolutely. Yeah. You pulled up that, the book Population Bomb, which I think, as you correctly said, was like 1960. But obviously, we can we can go back before that. If you come across Thomas Malthus, so this is now Industrial Revolution, and he basically came up with a very very similar thing. I call them the doomsayers, like kind of like well, both of them were were overpopulation, and there's no way that food production or innovation can keep up with this exponential growth of people. And that for me is like kind of as a behavioral futurist, that's kind of the the most interesting thing is like. How we're so bad at projection bias. We have this projection bias and we miss some of the incredible but optimistic future possibilities and how innovation actually plays out. So, both of those kind of were like, as I said, they had a really dim view of innovation, particularly around food, but just like there's no way food's going to keep up and it's going to cause war and famine and then everything else. But the conclusion you draw when you have such a pessimistic, and I'm going to say narrow view, like you discount the ability of humans to be creative and innovative creatures, which we are, is you suddenly, as you said, you come into the human rights issue of you get into scary territory of people going, we need to bring the population down. That's terrifying. Or on the flip side, we need to almost force people to reproduce. Both of those, absolutely, I completely agree You know that there needs to be an encouragement people to think of alternative scenarios and an alternative way to take agency for their own life and for kind of the future which they're, they're part of. Because sometimes governments really do some scary things.
2: Yeah, well said. It should be rooted, any response to this needs to be rooted in human rights principles. You know, the population decline in many instances, and I mentioned Bangladesh, you know, the, the population is, is coming down because women have more opportunity, more agency, the right over their bodies. They choose to have children later. There's many other factors involved in population decline. So it's a gross oversimplification. But these are some of our biggest development successes. We don't want to roll these back. We want to build on these human rights successes. This is why it's a scary territory. And when I talk to people about demographics, that's often an aha moment. That this and the way that governments address it is a human rights issue and uh, and it's probably going to be a human rights issue for many decades to come, and we need to be aware of it, and we're simply not
1: yes, that's a really important point So can I come on to some of the work you're doing around this because this is where it becomes fascinating because you're looking at kind of how some of these changes are then interlaced or connected to almost the behavior and outlook of younger generations. So I mentioned, I think before, the kind of the article that you wrote that was talking about kind of a lot of these issues. And I picked up on, I, I think the actual reason I reached out to you was you you included this phrase which I'd never come across, but I from my reading and research now is quite popular in Asia, called the lying flat generation. Could you kind of outline that because I find this absolutely fascinating I believe that there's also kind of a a similar phrase in China which is stroking fish don't know stroking fish there's a couple of internet memes
2: that went viral in China and became social movements which is you know so fascinating and you know how do you predict the future when you know like an internet meme can create social movements so quick and so it's, it's really fascinating. And in China, supposedly inspired by this 996 work culture, you know, working at 9am, finishing at 9pm and working six days a week, my goodness, memes started appearing around the theme of lying flat or Tang Ping, which is basically encouraging young people to have a laid back attitude to life. And this then developed, um, particularly over COVID and some of those crippling lockdowns in China, into... Let it rot or buy land, and uh, that is a, a bit more serious. Where it's meaning is letting things that are already beyond repair like deteriorate, and just and, and young people just deciding to let the country fall apart. I'm not going to be part of your project again. Partly a response to work culture, partly a response to lockdown, potentially a response to the mortgage crisis in in China. So. This is much to the consternation of the CCP, which has long sought to promote values of hard work and collective responsibility. And particularly as China has its own demographic crisis to contend with, you know, very recently, you know, it was in the news. The birth rate has well, the population has peaked. Birth rate is well below replacement rate. Um it peaked ten years earlier than UN estimates. This is another thing that makes population um like demographics so interesting. It is quite hard to predict and a lot of the demographers have, have really been caught by surprise at how rapidly populations are declining. So if less and less young people must support more and more old people, they're going to need to be really productive. So so a meme like let it rot is not what you want running through your youth population. But like Chinese youth aren't alone. You know, like here in Thailand, where I live, you know, after nationwide youth protests there were pro-democracy protests were crushed at times violently during COVID with cost of living spiraling. More and more Thai youth, whether you're looking at Twitter or you speak to them in the street or in a workshop, they don't see a future in Thailand. And it's this lack of trust in public institutions, which is really a global trend. And, you know, Thailand is already the economic laggard of Southeast Asia. You know, the economy is growing very, very slowly. It's now a super-aged society. So over 60s account for a fifth of the population. So the birth rate has declined to 1.5 children. The working age population is reducing dramatically and it will do over the coming decades. This is happening in Europe too, but Thailand is still a developing economy and old people's incomes are often insufficient. You know they lack health insurance. They often live in poor living conditions. Many don't have higher education. And uh, I think recently the Bangkok Post called it like a demographic doomsday. You know it's coming, and we need to be ready. Again, this is like the invert, like the opposite of population bomb. It's like now we're you know we're we're creating scary language as populations go the other way. So I, I'm interested in how. You know, when I do speak to young people about population decline, how many of them are so scared about the climate crisis that they can't even imagine having a baby. I mean, they often talk about how it's unaffordable to have a child. That comes up a lot, just about the cost of living, the cost of education, cost of healthcare, but also that, you know, the environmental crisis is such that we need to have less children. And this is
1: scary. And I think that's a really interesting point that you've just brought there, is just around that we've flipped what having a child means through history. If we go back, and I'm going to have to put loads of caveats around this because I'm, I'm not actually saying that history was right way. But if we go back kind of 100, 200 years, having a child was an asset. You needed that child for its labor, to put food on the table, to contribute to the family welfare. We've progressed. This is the caveat I'm putting in. I'm not saying we need to go back to to, to that situation. We've progressed to the point where now a child is a liability, where it's now actually it's not contributing thanks to the human rights laws that we've put in place and the, the economic progress we've made. We no longer need children to actually provide for the family, to put food on the table. We've created a world where we can provide for them. They switch from being an asset to a liability on a family balance sheet. And that brings with it its own social change, because then it stops being, okay, well, I need to have X number of children to support me, to I now have a child for personal growth, person, personal values for, for my own welfare and my own desires, rather than a, a necessary need. That's also what we're playing with here, isn't it? You're spot on. I mean, the trend is more and more of us
2: are living in urban city centers uh, rather than in rural areas, that is a trend that's continuing to increase. When you move away from the rural area, like oh, off the farm into a city, you're right. It's Instead of being another set of hands on the farm, it's another mouth to feed in the city. But simple things like in urban areas, there's less space. So it's it's more expensive to have a big enough house to house enough kids. We could go really down this rabbit hole of like all of the different factors that influence demographics. You know, for example, we're living in increasingly secular societies. There's less pressure from the minister, from the imam, from the religious leader, and from the religious community to have children. Like you said, it, it becomes more of um, for personal fulfillment. I read a study just the other day that I think was that I, I must bring up here. Which is, you know, we're talking here about why people are choosing not to have children. There's no doubt that there's a there's a percentage of people, and I think it can be really interesting amongst Gen Z and Gen Alpha, after them, how they see having children and whether they still want to have them. Because the ones I speak to almost unanimously don't. Um, But there was a study done in twenty in 2015, 2016. It was basically they were researching childlessness and they interviewed a considerable sample size and they found that 10% of those interviewed chose not to have kids because they didn't want to have kids i'm not saying in this conversation that if you don't want to have kids you should i'm not here like you know rattling the bell for like you should do what you don't want to do i believe in personal choice and personal freedom i especially believe in a woman's right to choose what to do with her body Another 10% of those surveyed couldn't because of infertility. 80% of those interviewed had always planned to and had always wanted to, but they weren't able to. Why? Because they put it off. You know, they put it off until their 30s. They couldn't find the right partner. Um, You know, one partner you thought was right, maybe that ended in divorce. Took another two, three years, a belief that technologies are going to help you have children like after your 30s and 40s. It can lead to some complacency. And there's this huge number of people out there in society who can't, who didn't have children, who really wanted them, 80%. And there are support groups for these people who feel men who feel like they're not a man because they couldn't have kids women who feel desperately lonely. And this is one of the trends that I think futurists and we should all be thinking about is in the coming decades, an epidemic of loneliness of people who wanted kids but could never have them and are now living lonelier lives because of it. So part of this is about choice. And I think the next generation is going to be increasingly a factor because of the climate crisis and the cost of living crisis. But it's also important to recognise as people decide to focus on education and their careers, they put it off later and later. And it's not always a given that you're going to be able to have that child in your 30s. And often,
1: it's a source of tremendous pain. I think that's a really interesting point, you know, just about how that kind of, you're right, you know, that that's another massive trend, isn't it, of that kind of having families later. And as you say, it comes from, I want a career first, and I want to complete my education, all positive things. But it brings with it new issues to get your head around, to tackle. Can I delve into something that you're working on? Because I think this is where we ended our conversation last time, actually. was I'm probably going to do this a disservice by calling it just a game. But you're building a, 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 a game, I don't have a better word, maybe you have a better word for this, for basically encouraging Youth to consider demographic change? Is that be Yeah, I had a
2: child last year, um, a little boy called Noah. It got me really thinking about demographics. I mean, it, it did. Uh, that's such a weird thing. It got me thinking about a lot of other things as well. Like, you know, being a father means a lot to me, not just like, how can I use this in my work? Don't <laughs> worry, I'm not Dr. Evil over here, but like, um, you know, for me, I, I was thinking about what the world would be like in 30 years. I was also thinking, you know, even though both me and my wife work and we're relatively successful, we, we do pretty well for ourselves. How are we going to afford to have this baby? And this really sparked my interest in thinking about, you know, we need to raise awareness of these issues. So I, I started thinking about, you know, how do I use foresight? To help raise awareness of demographics as a mega trend worthy of our attention. And, you know, just in this conversation, you know, some of the complexity is starting to like emerge. You know, this is to do with so many factors, you know, that the consequences on pensions and retirement ages and birth control and access to, you know, abortion and vasectomy to, you know, the economic considerations. And it's just the impact of religion and urbanization. There is so much complexity in this issue. I thought, you know, a great way to engage different stakeholders in a really complex subject like this is to use gaming, you know, is to create some rules around it where we can start playing and thinking about some possible alternative futures. And I started doing a lot of research on demographics and I thought, well, one of the things we do in futures thinking is we is we create alternative scenarios. You know, because we can't predict the future, we look at possible, probable, and preferred futures. And a, one of the ways of doing that there are many ways of doing this. One of the ways of doing that is is through a participatory approach, bringing different stakeholder groups together to work through a series of like methods and tools to think through the future in a structured way and. I thought maybe a game could really help strengthen this scenario building process. So I created sets of cards. Cards are great because cards give you a lot of flexibility because you can choose which card to introduce and when, so you can layer on complexity depending on the group that you're working with. And it also allows us to ensure that whether it be they're creating a future scenario or they're creating an artifact from the future, you know, a product from the future that they're considering different things. So for example, I created policy cards, you know, one policy card, for example, you know, some are quite dystopian, like denying women access to abortion. Well, that's dystopian or utopian, depending on who you're talking to, um, or denying access to family planning. You know, for example, what would the impact of that be on the future? Versus another policy um, level, which is seeing maybe health as the new GDP. So, you know, thinking about a world where health is a much more important part of our policymaking and our thinking about what success looks like in a, in a country or a society. So I created like 12 policy cards, all different and quite provocative. And then I created 12 culture cards because again, we, we often don't think how aging is going to influence the culture. You know, there are all these stories about elderly influencers coming out now on Instagram. There's like groups of like old men dressed up on the town, like getting millions of followers, you know, or like elderly music topping the charts. You know, these like, how will an aging society change the culture? How do we actually see the elderly and how do we therefore treat them? You know, it's like thinking about the culture shift. And then the last deck was technology carts, you know, again, with with things like gene editing and longevity tech and artificial intelligence and blockchain. You know, and, and I thought if I could equip groups of people, young people, young and old, policymakers, concerned citizens, with this range of cards and then let them play and let them create alternative scenarios or artifacts from the future, we could surface some really interesting emerging issues and we can get out of the box with our thinking on demographics and the game is still in development and we've done a couple of tests
1: and it's just fascinating to see what comes out of these decks of cards. There were two points that come from this. I'm going to forget one by the time I get to it, but the first one is just, I love what you're doing here because a lot of my work has been trying to advocate for what I'm going to call connected thinking in the, the way that we've kind of built knowledge in our society has to become more and more hyper specialists with a very narrow siloed view of life. And anything outside of that single vein, we have very little awareness of in the most part. But to actually understand these huge trends and mega trends, we need to stop being hyper specialists. Hyper specialists are still important, but we need to be able to have this part in our life where we completely step back and see how everything is connected. Because as we've talked about, like, we, yes, we started the conversation about demographics and, and young people and kind of how they're checking out of kind of the economy. But that brings in policy, as you said, human rights. It brings in kind of a lot of people's view of, oh, well, actually, there needs to be a population decline for climate change. We haven't even touched on things like, you know, kind of what companies thrive in the future because guess where the money's going to be? It's not going to be in the younger generation. It's going to be in the older generation. And so I, I, think, I think what you're doing is absolutely superb in facilitating people to join up these things in a, in a quite a fun, creative way. Hats off to you. What's the, what's the game going to be called? You know what? I, I, don't, I don't like the name right now. I think
2: it, it needs to change because it's so depressing. I wanted to create something quite provocative, and so population collapse was the first step, but I think it could be something. I don't think many people buy Collapse, do you know what I mean? Um, but I'll finalize that in the, in the coming months. I mean, it's been, one of the reasons why this game is possible is because of the support of the School of International Futures and the Next Generation Foresight Practitioners program. Like I, I submitted the game to them as part of this prize. They basically support young Foresight practitioners around the world. School of International Futures, look it up. Next Generation Foresight practitioners and gave me an award for it. And they are now mentoring me and also um, giving some small funds. And we're identifying opportunities to test the game. So it's still very much a working prototype. We've had a chance to test it at the Asia Pacific Futures Network Conference. So this is the most boring part of the conversation so far. What's really fascinating is seeing what people do with these cards and, and what emerges from them. So one group um, pulled out a set of um, different cards and the way we did this particular test was they had to work together for about half an hour, 45 minutes to brainstorm how these cards could use to create a new story from the future in 20 years time. So it was like a they had to do a role play and they had to do like a new story from the future. And, and that's a cool way of doing a presentation back because everyone knows what uh, A news broadcast is like, and there's probably going to be news broadcasters in the future, whether they be robots or I don't know. But, and one group talked about young people going off grid out of their infuriation with being forced to pay for the elderly generation at their futures being sort of sold down the river, that they increasingly turn to blockchain technology to trade and to make money outside of their nation state that they are increasingly finding ways to avoid paying tax because they have no intention of supporting the elderly generation. The intergenerational fairness would be so strained, you know, that would manifest itself in protests, but also young people just leaving the country. And there being less and less of a taxable populace for the government to be able to fix these issues that it's got itself into. You know, And then another group was really talking about the importance of fertility in 20 years that through gene editing, but also the declining quality of male sperm, that suddenly there would be a tremendous premium on fertile males, males who are able to have children, that it would become much more competitive. and, And there would be these new sort of dividing lines for social hierarchies. And then one last one that's worthy of note was that um, in the future, we would increasingly turn to artificial intelligence to ensure that people at an even younger age and at an older age would be contributing to the economy through AI assistance, for example. And as we entrust AI to educate our young people, they were talking about malware and um, hacking of our educational systems from foreign powers and bad actors, and how you know m- malware became a really important policy priority Governments as they sought to modernize their education systems through AI. You know, these things seem weird and they should do. You know, 20 years is a long time. The world can change a lot. A lot of people in foresight will say things about the future and people will be like, Are you crazy? I I love, like, Sahail Iniotilla, you know, my, my business partner, he tells this wonderful story of how in the early 90s, he was telling big food companies that in the future, the vegan burger will be. Highly, highly de- in demand. It will be the new frontier. Lab grown meat. And he was practically laughed out the room 15 years later. And it's the primary investment and the primary product, you know. So futurists have to go out on a limb and make bold statements that sound ridiculous. Any useful idea about the future should at first appear ridiculous. That's how Jim Beta put it. And I, it's great to see how the game is, it's creating some of those ridiculous. New stories from the future, and really challenging our assumptions about where we're going to go as a as a civilization,
1: yeah, there's another phrase that that I think is more used in kind of investment management, which kind of pulls on the same point, is being right ahead of the time is indistinguishable to being wrong. And it's exactly that point, isn't it, that you know, just because it's not happening around us right now, we kind of neurologically and psychologically kind of go. No, like that's projection bias. We just, we just kind of assume quite arrogantly, I guess, that we have reached the kind of the pinnacle. There's very little progression from here. And therefore, we kind of go, no, that's, that's just not feasible. Actually, that leads us into quite pessimistic views oftentimes because we're like, we've reached the, the peak of innovation, we've reached the peak of technology. So now the only possibility left is bad stuff. This leaves us very vulnerable to disruption. This
2: is why UNESCO has put so much effort into promoting futures literacy as a literacy as important as reading and writing that we need to be better prepared for change which is the only constant and part of that is not seeing the future as sort of a linear extension of the present but as you know making room for imagination for creativity for you know, extraordinary possibilities. And maybe if young people, like if these next generations had that capacity and saw the future as a place that not just fetishizing dystopian futures, but as a place of possibility, of opportunity, then, you know, what would that do for their sense of agency and for the decisions that they
1: make in the present? I think that is perhaps the perfect place to finish. Honestly, thank you for such a great conversation and, and the work you're doing. I honestly take my hat off to you and I think it's great. Can I get you to come back on this show when the game is fully launched and we'll talk about some of the stuff you've seen going on? Absolutely. That'd be great. We've got a couple of tests coming up and
2: currently working with a tremendous designer who's actually building the car deck. We're creating a whole brand look and feel. A few tests, first two quarters of this year. And I think this thing will be ready to be put in the hands of citizen assemblies, um, university students, possibly even companies who are thinking about potential opportunities as our demographic structures
1: change in the coming decades. And I'd love to share that journey with you. It'd be awesome, Chris. I mean, finally, if people want to find out more about you and what you do and perhaps what you do at Futurely and things, where do they go? Where can they find more about you? Yeah, I mean,
2: please do look me up on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to connect. Um, I don't know if you can put the link in the show notes. You can check out some of the Youth Foresight programs that I run on the Futurely website, which is futurely.online. Um, that's futurely.online. And if you're interested in learning more about futures thinking, if maybe you are uh, had some exposure to foresight, futures thinking, or well, maybe you're brand new to it, check out metafutureschool.org metafutureschool.org. Again, I'll, I'll share the link, Chris, but we have a few courses that basically make a lot of this thinking accessible. It's about moving people from an understanding of the theory to actually practicing futures, doing futures research. Maybe you're in the world of finance or you know, perhaps you're, uh, who knows, maybe you work in big food and you want to better anticipate how the world is changing and maybe get ahead of some of these disruptions and start creating the future rather than just being victim to it. Maybe this course will be a good first step. There's a lot of other great courses out there, but this is a big part of my work. So be happy to talk more.
1: And I'll put, I'll put all those links in the show notes. So yeah, everyone can find them easily, but no, honestly, thank you so much for such a great conversation. Yeah. Pleasure. Thank you, Chris.
0: You've been listening to Transitional Matters. Make sure to like, subscribe, and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk. And we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions. All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.